There it is. All right, yes, hey, it's good to see you all tonight. My name is Jonathan. I'm the campus pastor with RUF. Um, This is our weekly large group. We do a bunch of other stuff throughout the week, but this is the time where we come together and uh, sing, study the Bible, see how it applies to our life. We're a Christian group on campus, um, and we think that that matters to be a Christian in college. It's sort of a a bold claim that uh, some people maybe don't agree with or some people don't care about, but we think it does matter, so uh, we want to look at the the Bible. Um, I hope you had a good week. I had a hard week. Y'all know I've had a hard hard go of it. Um, my mom is fighting uh, fighting cancer, and yesterday had a huge blow um, that she uh, uh, is, I mean, not, not going to make it. Um, so that's been weighing really heavily on me. Um, it's kind of the end of the fighting phase of cancer and the beginning of the dying phase of it. So that's been really affecting me this week, so you can pray for my family. Most of you know that my wife and I and daughter are planning on moving up there in, uh, to Colorado in May to largely be with her. Um, but also we're going to plant an RUF up there. Um, but also, yeah, to be with her as she dies. So um, just pray for, pray for my, my dad in particular. He's really sad right now. He's had a really hard day this week and yesterday. So um, it's going to be okay. God is in control. We're going to study the Psalms the second half of the semester, which is all about dealing with sadness. A lot, a lot of them are, so it'll be good for all of us. So, but that's not tonight. We are tonight continuing our study of the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets are a section of God's uh, word that uh, we don't always know what to do with um, because they can be confusing or challenging. And tonight we're going to press on with that. And tonight we are going to look at the book of Amos, the book of Amos. Um, and while I am up here talking, if you have questions or uh, about what I'm talking about, um, feel free to shoot me a text. My phone number is on the piece of paper in front of you, and I will try and dialogue with those questions afterwards. Uh, I can't always promise I will answer them, but I will at least respond. Um, so, Amos is a book. Maybe you've read Amos. Maybe you have no idea what this book is about. Um, if there was one word to describe what this book is about, it's about the idea and the reality of justice. The reality and the idea of justice. Uh, Amos was a prophet who lived, we'll talk about this a little bit, about 700 years before Jesus Christ. And he wants us, as he writes here, to feel the weight and the wonder not only of human justice, but of God's justice. And that's such a cool theme, I think, for our moment in being a human being and being on college because so much of college students, so much of college life is asking questions of justice, racial justice, sexual justice, economic justice, political justice. What is right? What is true? What is just in a society? And Amos is interested in that as much or more than we are. And so the the main theme of the book of Amos is that God is universally just. The God of the Bible is universally just, and he will bring perfect justice to this world. God is universally just, and he will bring perfect justice to this world. And so we're going to look at this in three ways tonight. Three ways. We're going to look at the universal justice of God, God's provision of compassionate justice, and our call to compassionate justice. So God's universal justice... God's provision of compassionate justice and our call to compassionate justice. So, the universal justice of God. So, um, let me read this text and we will dive in. This is uh, Amos chapter 5. What verse did I start us on? (laughs) 18. 
18. That's what I thought. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have that day of the Lord? If it is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And peace offerings and, 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 and your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like the ever-flowing stream. And then skipping ahead to chapter 9, verse 11, it says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father in heaven, as we look at your word tonight and study the justice of God and all its dynamics, I pray that you would be with us, that you would equip our hearts and our mind, both individually and as a community, to hear what you're teaching us. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Okay, so the main theme of, Je- of Amos is God is universally justice and will bring perfect justice to this world. Three ways that we'll see that, the universal justice of God, God's provision of compassionate justice, and our call to compassionate justice. So, the universal justice of God. You don't see this right off the bat because we didn't read it, um, but, but if you open the book of Amos, Amos starts his, his writing just with a bang, right off the bat. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the very beginning and it just says... He says, God is coming, be afraid, in a sense. That's, that's how he opens up. The very first wor- words, he's a, he's a shepherd. Amos is a shepherd, and he says, The Lord roars from Zion, and he says, The pastures mourn and the mountains wither. And so here's this person who has a very uh, pastoral, like he, he guards sheep, and he pictures right off the bat, God is a lion who's coming into a sheep, uh, a group of, sh- a herd of sheep, which is a huge threat. And so he says, God is coming. And then he begins to say, and he's coming with justice. And he's coming with justice. And so then Amos proceeds to say, if you have a Bible, you can look at this. Amos begins to say that God is coming in justice and namely in punishment against all the city-states that are around Israel. And so he just kind of goes in a circle around Israel. And you see up here on this map that I put up here, uh, he begins to describe city-states around the people of Israel. And he says, God is coming to punish Gaza. God is coming to Damascus, to Tyre, etc. And so he says, all these different places, God is coming in justice to these places around Israel. And each one of these is a little oracle of God's coming justice. And he says, why God is coming. He says, God is coming to punish you. And each one he says, God is coming to punish you, Gaza or Damascus or Tyre. Because of deep systemic injustice and oppression and social evil within these cities. Deep injustice in these cities. For example, against the Ammonites. You can see where the Ammonites are up on that northeast side. He says, he says the, uh, the, it's a city-state east of Jerusalem. He, says, he accuses them, he says, of ripping open pregnant women to enlarge their borders. So the Ammonites are apparently committing some kind of infanticide for the cause of conquest, even colonization, right? So God, so Amos says, God is coming to punish you, O Ammonites, because of this great evil that you're perpetuating and allowing. And he says, it's not just Ammonites. 
All the people around Israel are under the same thing. There's these nations that have allowed big social wicked evil things like colonizing and invasions and infanticide and deep systemic problems of economics and politics. Like a lot of injustice is going on in this area. So you remember that Amos is speaking to the ancient Israelites who were supposed to be and were God's people. God had said, you are my people, I will be your God, I will be among you. And so you can hear Amos coming and telling all Israel's neighbors, God is coming in justice to punish their evil. And Israel's like, ha, got him. This is like God's coming to get him. This is going to be great. God's coming in clutch. He's going to nuke our neighbors. We get the easy treatment. And so they think they're you know, like, well, we're God's favorite. People will be okay. But this is amazing. Right after God comes and, and, and says he's coming to punish all the other nations, right after Amos says that, he says, and Israel, you're not off the hook either. You're under the insane indictment. And he proceeds to absolutely rip them a new one. And you can read this in chapter 2. It says, for three transgressions of Israel, for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, I'm coming to punish you, even Israel, who are my people, for the exact same reasons that I'm coming to punish and bring justice against the nations. That you are allowing and perpetuating grave systemic injustice against the, the poor, the needy, the afflicted. And so Amos says that as bad as the nations around Israel are for their social sins, Israel is no better. In fact, he says that Israel is worse because not only are they perpetuating this social problem, they're also allowing spiritual problems. They're even celebrating spiritual problems. And if we back up a little bit, we can see what this means. So a history lesson. God had told Israel, he says, hey, you're supposed to worship me only. You're only supposed to worship me, and, and, and the only place you're allowed to worship me is in Jerusalem, which is uh, where modern-day Jerusalem is, right up there, right by the Dead Sea. And uh, for some people, that was pretty geographically inconvenient, because like, now oh, we've got to go worship. If we're going to worship God, we've got to make a big, long trek all the way to Jerusalem, and we'd rather not do that. So some of them thought, well, let's set up some alternative worship locations in what's called Gilgal and um, Bethel. You see those? up a little bit north. <clears throat> and there was some other political stuff going on in there. Um, but actually what had happened is these alternative worship locations deteriorated into alternative worship. And no longer were the Israelites worshiping God even. They were, so they were not even worshiping God and they were doing it in the wrong spot. And so Amos comes and says, Israel, you're not off the hook. In fact, you're worse because you're doing the same injustice as the other nations and you're breaking the promise that you made to God to worship only him. And that's the biggest sin you can do. So if you read Amos, and I encourage you to do that this week, you'll see that Amos just kind of bounces around within it of describing the theological idolatry that's happening in their society and the social injustice that's happening within their society. And he says, overall, God is coming to punish you. This cannot go unanswered. There has to be a result of this. And that's what he's getting at in chapter 5 that we just read about. He says, God is coming and the day of the Lord, which we talked about last week, it's a dark day. 
a man that fled from a lion and a bear. And this is a man, you know, Amos is a man who lives among sheep. He knows what lions and bears can do. He says it's a day of gloom and darkness. <clears throat> and he says, uh, he says, the day of the Lord, the punishment is coming. It's being handed out. And even when Israel looks at it and says, eh, we're the special people. We're not going to get this. We do all the solemn assemblies. We do the burnt offerings. Verse 22 and 23, we do the grain offerings. We do the peace offerings. God says, I'm not going to accept those because you're doing it wrong. You're allowing deep injustice to continue and you're worshiping wrongly. So the Bible here is telling us that God will bring justice against Israel's idolatry and their injustice. Now, how does this apply to us? <laughs> That's the burning question here, right? Why does this history lesson of what happened to the ancient Israelites and everybody around them 700 years have anything to say about where we are? Many of us would look at it and say, I'm not that bad. This doesn't seem to apply to... I don't worship little statues of ancient Near East fertility gods. And I certainly don't do colonizing infanticide. What's the big deal? What is this all about? And some of you would think, see, here's the Bible once again just being all about punishment and God's angry. I'm not a bad person. And one of the starting points of the Bible is to say that, in fact, we actually might be. We might be as that bad people, that we might be, and sometimes our badness is worse than we realize. And I've been thinking about this week as I've been listening to a new set of music that I don't normally listen to. I've been listening to a lot of cowboy music this week. <laughs> like old cowboy music, like Waylon Jennings and Johnny Cash and all these old guys. And you know who what you know you know who gets the idea that humans are maybe worse than we think? Cowboys. Cowboy music even. Those old cowboy understand they understand what Amos is talking about because these songs are interesting because they often put themselves in the position of, I'm the bad guy. I'm the guy who shot down the sheriff in cold blood. I'm the stagecoach thief. I'm the cattle rustler. There are these sad ballads. There's this one super sad song called I Hung My Head. And it's by Johnny Cash. And he talks about this time where he shot an innocent man and he hangs his head in shame. And then he hangs his head in shame as the jury convicts him. He says, yeah, I shot him. I have no excuse. He hangs his head. And the end of the song, it's about how the jury convicts him. And he hangs his head as he's executed on the gallows for, actu for, for, for killing an innocent man. He says, yeah, I did it. I have no excuse. I'm the, I'm the bad guy. And it's a heavy song, but it's a great song because it's Johnny Cash singing in the first person that I'm, I'm a bad guy. And these songs are so great because they're honest acknowledgments that there is no gold soul in the, in the Old West, right? Everybody was capable of killing the sheriff, of shooting up the saloon, of stealing the cattle. Everybody can be the bad guy. And I think those cowboy songs are onto something, y'all. I think that if I look into my own life, that maybe Amos is onto something here that tells us that we are like, we're like these nations. We're either like Israel or we're like the other nations in idolatry and injustice. And I've been thinking about it this way. None of us is as good of friends as we should be. Like none of us is the friend that our, our friend deserves, right? I'm not the spouse, the husband that my wife deserves, even yesterday. 
I had a really, you know, in the midst of this stuff with my mom, I had a moment where I snapped and I got really mad at my daughter and my wife. I was reflecting, I was like, I'm not the person that they deserve. And my wife is sort of, and, and, I mean, and, and she's the same way to me, and you're the same way to your friend. We've all dropped the ball in gossip, in laziness, in not responding to a text. And that's injustice to our friends because they deserve better, right? They deserve our compassion and our presence, and we, we're just not the friend that they deserve. And that, I mean, that's injustice right then and there in some small way. And it says if we're maybe bad in that way, maybe it's possible that we're actually worse than we think. What about the idolatry thing? Idolatry is not just worshiping ancient Near East fertility gods. Idolatry is saying, hey, there's this thing out there that I value and trust more than the God of the Bible. And when we put it in that terms, all of us have probably definitely prioritized something in our life this week over God. Work, sports, money, family, schoolwork, grades. We've all said, God, this thing is more important than you. And I'm going to pursue this thing in place of you. And the message of Amos, again, is that unless God does something special and spiritual, and we're going to talk about that in a second, unless God does something special and spiritual, we are all exposed to the justice of God. Now, the good news of the Bible is that God does do something special and spiritual, right? That's the, the first point, is that God is universally just, and we all stand in some way condemned. But God doesn't leave us there. God comes and does something special and spiritual, and what the Bible calls a work of grace. He does not leave us in this space of justice coming against us. He gives ways out. He gives escape. Listen to what Amos 5 says earlier on. It says, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O oh, you who turn justice to wormwood and pervert justice on the earth, seek the Lord and live. So what is Amos saying? He's saying there's a way out of this vicious cycle in repentance that if Israel will turn from their idolatry at Bethel and Gilgal, will turn from their bitter, perverted justice and will come to God, that, that, that God will respond in relief and relenting of his of the punishment. There's a way out. And this is a call to Israel and to any non-Israelite, to Israelite, anyone non-Israelite that says, turn from the injustice and the idolatry in your heart and your life and, 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 and say, God, I'm more broken than I thought. I need help. And God says, of course, I'll relent. Of course, I will not punish that. And whoever does that, God promises that he will be merciful. This is where chapter 9 comes in. Look at chapter 9, verse 11 again. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now what in the world is going on there? This is a little complicated, so hold on, but I hope you see how beautiful and lovely this is. God here is saying that even if punishment is the reality for Israel, it's never the end of the story. And if there's one thing you ever hear about the minor prophets, is that punishment is never the end of the story. Yes, Israel will be punished. They will face exile in Babylon. But God will regather them again. And he will, as he says here, raise up the fallen booth of David. Now what is that about? What in the world is that about? 
Well, before all of this had happened, God had made a promise with David, who was the great king of Israel. He was the great king of Israel, and he had said, David, your heir will always be on the throne. I will never not have your heir on the throne. And I promise that he will always be there. And remember, if there's one thing the Bible shows us over and over again, it's that God makes and keeps promises. So he says, even when he punishes Israel, he will not destroy them. Yes, David's tent will fall under punishment, but God will raise it up. David's heir will again be on the throne. He will be king. And that king will be both perfectly merciful and perfectly just. Isaiah is another prophet, talks about that king, and he says that king will bring perfect justice to the oppressed, that the oppressed and the afflicted will be supported, that the wicked will be punished perfectly. Listen to Isaiah 9. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish his rule and to uphold it with what? Justice and righteousness. A king who will be both merciful and kind to whoever trusts and repents in him and who will be just to those who are not. And you know, what's going, you know where it's going here. Jesus is David's heir. Jesus is the one who comes, who is, comes from the long line of David. He is David's great heir. Jesus is the perfect king who would be, God would raise him up again. He would raise him up again so that Jesus is the perfect king who is punished in our place. All the condemnation and punishment that Israel and we all deserve, Jesus freely takes it onto himself. And then God raises his, um, him up again from the dead. In his death, Jesus takes the punishment that we and Israel deserve for our injustice and our idolatry. And Jesus is raised back to life. And Jesus is the tent raised who gives us the mercy that we need. So that judgment is not the end of Israel's story. And judgment is not, for those of us who trust in Christ, the end of your story. What I want you to see here is that Amos and these prophets, judgment is a reality. I'm not going to beat around that. It is a reality, but it's never the end of the story. Judgment is never the end of the story. That repentant faith in trust in who Jesus is, the heir of David... That when we do that, we cannot face the judgment. Because Jesus takes it on himself. On the cross, justice indeed would roll down like waters and righteousness would flow. And the perfection of Christ is given to us and our brokenness is placed on Christ. So that in the end, it's not... It's not that Israel is destroyed. No, they're rebuilt. David is rebuilt. And, 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 and the whole problem is solved. Justice is brought. So what does this mean? So first we see that God's universal justice. God's, second we see God's provision of compassionate justice. And third, our call to compassionate justice. What does this mean for me? How does it affect our lives? Well, one of the immediate applications for Israel was that they had to turn from their empty religion and injustice to seek to love God and love neighbor. Say, wow, if God is moving towards us in this promise-keeping, raising up compassion... We should turn towards those in ways that we used to be oppressing and holding them down and turn towards them in promise-keeping compassion and mercy. That if Israel's sin was distinctively social in its injustice, that obedience and love correlates to being distinctively social in nature, social justice. And that's a biblical reality that God cares about the social dimension 
not just individual relationships, but how our society, how our campus, how our world, how our city is, is formed. So social justice is when we as Christians, in response to Christ's mercy and justice towards us, respond in mercy and compassion and justice towards others. And so we're going to try and figure out how can we do that as an RUF community. And one of the things that we talked about is, is at a student ministry or student leadership uh, meeting was that the idea of over the next month of February, each um, large group, we're going to have the opportunity for people to bring either some toiletries or a small snack or some water bottles. And we're just going to gather them each week at large group. And then uh, one of the, the last weeks of February, we're going to get together and put all this stuff together and build little blessing bags that each of you can take with you to hand out to people who are in need around town. Is it going to make a big difference? No, but it's a way of extending the compassion and the mercy and the justice that we've received from Christ to those around us on campus, as you're driving around Loman or wherever. So what this means is that we'll have a Venmo screen up there that uh, each week that you can um, either send money if that's easier for you, buy a tube of toothpaste, we'll remind you, we'll put it in group me and all that, a way to say God has been compassionate and given mercy and justice to me through Jesus. And I want to try and figure out some small way with a $2 tube of toothpaste to do the same for the people who are around me. So just stay tuned for this. We'll have a pizza party to build these blessing bags, um, and anybody can come, and, and, we'll, and, we'll, and it's a concrete way to say, Christ has loved me in this way, and we are going to respond in justice and mercy towards our city. We want to follow in Christ's steps. Amos is a book about God's justice, justice that chases us down. It shows our own internal and societal injustice, exposes us, but it does not leave us there. I hope you see that. It does not leave us in that place, but it points us to Jesus. It points us to the one who satisfies perfect justice and perfect mercy, compassion and punishment at the same time met in Jesus. And then it says when you study and sit in that as people in this community, go out and call in a call of compassion and mercy towards those around you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, um, I pray that as we sit in this word as we think about your justice and how perfect you are in it, that you would shape us each to be more aligned with your character, with your justice, with your perfection, and that we would move towards others, fellow human beings, with the same kind of justice, mercy, and compassion that you do towards us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's see here. All right, just one question. Somebody says, I've heard it many times that modern idolatry means making something that is not God, God. When did this idea of idolatry arise? It seems like this is a modern interpretation of an ancient law rather than the original interpretation. Great question. All right. Um, When did this arise? Boy, all right, there's a lot of questions in there. I've heard, it t- I've heard it many times that modern idolatry means making something that is not God, God. Yes, that is definitely true. So even for the ancient Near Easterners who were looking to, I don't know, a clay figurine to, to, to say, you know, they were worshiping that. They were turning to something and saying, this is our source of security, trust, hope, fertility. This is how we're going to hope we get our crops, that kind of thing. And so the heart movement in that was 
I'm not sure, especially for the Israelites, I'm not sure the God of the Bible is good enough. And I need to try and work my, I need to hedge my bets with something else, something extra that will um, provide for that. So, yes, we maybe today aren't worshiping ancient Near Eastern gods, but we're still doing the same heart movement of I'm looking for something, anything that will satisfy my need for control, my need for peace. And so we all do that. We look, for, we look to school, we look to money, we look to something to say, this is my source of security, my hope, my longings met. And so, um, so this, is, and this is not just me speaking as a theologian, this is me speaking as a sociologist, as an anthropologist. Um, when did this idea of idolatry arise? Well, I would argue it's as old as the Bible. Um, when did it take on its distinctively modern form of us not bowing down to idols anymore? Well, I would say when Christianity all of a sudden pretty much got to be a big deal uh, in our Western world and idolatry as it is, you know, worshiping little clay pots wasn't a thing. Um, but we still had the, you know, we still have the movement, the, the heart yearnings of looking for something else. It seems like a modern interpretation of an ancient law rather than the original interpretation. You could argue that, I think. Um, I'll spend some time on this one because it's the only question. But I would say that the Bible still says you can look at parts of Isaiah 44. You can look at uh, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 19, that the heart, again, the position of the heart is not trusting the God of the Bible and is trusting um something other than God. A really great resource that I recommend that's highly readable on this is a book called Seculosity. Seculosity, it's by a guy named David Zoll. Um, and so he looks at what are some of the modern idols that we do. Yes, we don't necessarily bow down to clay figures, but this, this is the same posture of happening in our world. Um, there's another guy named Chris Wright who's written a lot on modern idol, uh, I, um, written on ancient Near Eastern idolatry and how it correlates today. So I can point you to some of those resources. So that's all. That's kind of in a weird direction, but it's good. All right, let's sing.